I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Laura Lippman on her latest novel, Prom Mom. Laura Lippmann's novels have won many crime fiction prizes, including the Edgar, Anthony, Agatha and E. Donnett Awards. Her most recent works include Sunburn, a Waterstones thriller of the month in 2018, Lady in the Lake, which is currently being adapted by Apple TV, and Dreamgirl, which was shortlisted for the 2022 CWA Ian Fleming Steel Dagger. And today we're going to be talking about Laura's latest book, which is Prom Mom. Laura, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. First of all, then, tell us how you would describe this one. How would I describe this one? To me, this is a novel about second chances that we probably shouldn't want but can't keep ourselves from pursuing. It's about how adults deal with traumas from their teen years. And I think it's also about how people become transgressive. What was really interesting to me was to look at these scenarios in the work of James M. Cain, who is one of my favorite writers. And if you read Double Indemnity or The Post Noise Rings Twice, the characters move so very quickly to felonious behavior. It's like they've been sitting around just waiting for the opportunity. And and in Cain's world, that makes sense. It just does. And he does it beautifully. But I'm more interested in how you get to that place where you begin contemplating terrible things. You know, that I start with the idea that very few people are just born evil, but a lot of people end up doing some pretty evil stuff and trying to justify it. And I'm fascinated by that. The book has a very specific inspiration, which we'll talk about in a minute. But whenever you've been on the show before, we've always talked about how your books, each book is a different sort of exercise in a type of genre. So is this one, I mean, you just mentioned James M. Cain. So is that what this one is? I mean, it, to me, I think increasingly my work is usually like one part crime novel, one part, some other inspiration. So it's definitely looking back to Cain and Double Indemnity. But I also really had in mind the rabbit books by John Updike, which are, I think, technically a quartet, although maybe there is a fifth one about his family after he had died. They center on like a pretty average, handsome guy from a small town in Pennsylvania. And 
there are books that I really love, but I'm really fascinated by the character of Rabbit, which is a nickname for Harry Engstrom, and his his need to sort of stay golden, be blameless, to always see himself as the person who's who's being put upon. I mean, Harry Engstrom does some pretty horrible stuff. I mean, he actually has sex with his own daughter-in-law. I say that out loud and I'm like, could that be true? I'm like, yeah, I think that's true. But anyway, so it was definitely a combination of those two. Well, I haven't read them all, but I also don't remember him having a baby at the prom. Um, So let's talk about where the actual inspiration for this book and and indeed the title, what was the sort of original inspiration for the story? Well, I mean, I stole the title from a podcast. It's a podcast that's very popular in the United States called You're Wrong About. And Sarah Marshall, who's now the solo host of it, at the time of the Prom Mom episode, she was co-hosting with a terrific journalist, Michael Hobbs. They sort of specialize in looking back at notorious people in recent history, especially women, and re-examining their stories and how they were reported. This began... Sarah Marshall's fascination with these topics began with a long reported piece she did um, arguing that Tanya Harding had been treated very unfairly in the press and in the public imagination. And so it would have been, I've gone back now and looked it up after two weeks of touring in the United States. I thought you really should check your memory on some of this stuff. It was probably June of 2020 when I heard this podcast. I was on one of my daily walks. I walk all the time. And they've highlighted two different cases, both from the 90s, I believe, in which children were born proximate to a dance and did not survive. And Prom Mom was probably the tabloid headline used for one of these cases. But what interested me wasn't the real cases, which I I had known about and heard about. And I think I had been rather just sort of disgracefully and curious about them. But Sarah made this off-the-cuff remark about how, oh yeah, teenage girls know their bodies so well, they could never possibly be confused about being pregnant. And I don't know why in that moment that idea caught me and got me interested in writing this book. Because I think up until that moment, I'd taken a rather black and white view of these stories. Oh, a girl got pregnant. She didn't do anything about it. And then this tragedy happened. And let's just, you know, keep moving. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing interesting about it. But when I really began thinking about that idea of yes, actually, maybe it's because at the time I had a a kid who was just about to enter adolescence. I don't know why in that particular instance, I could begin to see the story, I think with a lot more empathy, and I could begin to see how a girl could be caught up in circumstances that were overwhelming and baffling. And I wanted to write about that. And I also wanted to write about, and then who are you 20 plus years later? Do you ever get to stop being prom mom? Are you forever held captive by the mistakes of your youth? And I think that's a theme I've written about a lot. Or can you figure out a way to make a a new life for yourself in this very hyper-connected Everything can be Googled. People are always looking for an opportunity to reveal people's past and their secrets and to scold them. I was just curious about all of those things. I'm a I'm a massive fan of the the whole Sarah Marshall, Michael Hobbs, Aubrey Gordon access of um, various podcasts and media. Um, and obviously, we're not going to sort of relitigate what they talk about on that 
on that podcast, yeah. Palmar. But as you said, I mean that's a that's it's quite an old episode, and obviously things have changed for the worse in various ways in the US since it came out. There's obviously not, I guess, not really causes for why these two particular sort of cases happen, but the podcast obviously talks about the sort of tabloidy atmosphere in which they were sort of discussed and things that might have been blamed. But I presume the situation in the US with um, Roe versus Wade is obviously just going to make this sort of thing much more likely to happen now. That seems just obvious to me. I mean, the thing that's really surprising, because as I said, I wasn't really that interested in the particulars of those two cases. But I did want to read pretty widely about just this. This happened a lot. It was always happening and it will always be happening. I happened to be in St. Louis last week where I have a friend and she's a writer, but she was also an emergency room nurse for many years. And she said, oh, we saw 10 cases a month in which women didn't know they were pregnant and they weren't always teenagers. He's like, this is a thing that happens. And of course, it's going to be happening more. I mean, if you if you make abortion laws stricter, if you make I mean, at this point, it's almost like certain states are begging for it to happen. It's really shocking to me. And, you know, I started writing the book probably right at the beginning of 2021. And I tend toward optimism. And I'm not I'm a really positive person, which can can lead to my own kind of denial, right? I didn't, I didn't see them coming for Roe v. Wade until it was much too late. I, I, can't, I can't claim to be one of the people who is prescient about it. I think it was only then I was like, oh my God, they're really going to do it. They're going to restrict abortion rights, even as they're restricting sex education. <laughs> and I, mean, I just, I wish my book were less timely. Let's put it that way. This is not a development that I anticipated, and I'm I'm not happy that it exists. So your main character Amber, um, who is the um, the prom mom of the title, um, as she is, you know, she is dubbed in the media in this story um, after the incident that happens to her. Tell us something about who she is when we first meet her. Well, we first meet her as a teenage girl on the night of that prom, waking up to something that she doesn't even seem to be able to comprehend. And she is kind of nerdy. She's a smart, somewhat attractive girl, but she comes from an odd family. She's a little odd, but she's just really aware that she doesn't fit in. And she's not trying to fit in. She's one of those kids who sort of accepted, okay, in high school, this is not where I'm going to blossom, but she has big dreams. She wants to go to France. She is crazy about art. And she ends up, tutoring a star athlete whose grades have fallen apart in the wake of a bad breakup. And she becomes very fixated on him. They begin a kind of secret romance, which for him is clearly just about sex. And she sort of knows it, but she sort of can't quite believe it. And she is a bit obsessed with him. And she pressures him to take her to prom, where to her dismay, he spends all his time running after his old girlfriend. You mentioned her family, and it's only a, like a very she's only a very small character. But I want to talk about Amber's mother because she's just so vivid in her awfulness. Yeah, she's she's terrible, and you can see even I hope one can see. Although there are only little flashes, 
this is a woman who doesn't seem particularly maternal. I mean, we don't, you know, she she had virtually no relationship or very, you know, no relationship that Amber remembers with her actual biological father. And she has remarried someone who seems to be kind of a nice, quiet, sort of nondescript man who's very kind, but the mother even sort of seems to make sure that there's a bit of a wedge between stepfather and daughter. And she, you know, she won't let him pay for anything. She won't let him be Amber's father. And it almost seems to be kind of a perverse punishment. Like she's terrified that if her husband can show sort of an appropriate stepfatherly love toward Amber, that there's less love for her. She's just really mean and grudging. And she is that person who puts herself at the center of every story. You know, we say this about a lot of people, but Amber's mother is definitely someone who thinks everything is about her. So Amber basically talked Joe into taking her to the prom. The prom is obviously something that, I mean, they're starting to creep over here to the UK as well, but it's it's a sort of like, strange ritual of US schools that I don't really understand myself is not something that happened many years ago that I went to school. And one of the things we see in this novel is when Amber goes to buy her prom dress, she happens to be, this is obviously not something that happens to everybody's prom, but she happens to be accompanied. They've agreed that she will be part of a news story about the choosing of the dress. And I'd like to talk about what this was inspired by. Well, I I wrote a story like that when I was a reporter back in the 90s. And the girl I chose was an honor student. And her mother was lovely. Her mother was a total sweetheart. They were two of the nicest people in the world. And it was just a sweet story about this spring ritual of shopping for a prom dress, which comes with all its own tropes. The girl always wants to look older. The mother always wants her to look younger. It's always set up as kind of, you know, an inevitable tension. But it was it was really a sweet, lovely day. And I enjoyed doing the story. And I think when I started writing this book, initially I thought it was going to be a book that was sort of shaped and structured more like um, a true crime podcast or a television documentary, and there would be all of these talking heads, all of these sort of ancillary witnesses, you know, who would then be telling their stories after the fact when, with hindsight, their stories suddenly seemed to be very important. And while I kept five or six of those chapters that all center on the prom itself, I threw away reams of material. I had so much material I had written. You know, what does Amber's high school guidance teacher think about her? What about the person she worked at the ice cream store with? What about the maid who found the crime scene? I had all of these chapters. And about three months into writing the book, I think I threw them all out. And, you know, sometimes as a writer, I'm pretty intuitive. I mean, you know, part of the reason I'm interested in outsider or visionary art. And part of the reason Amber Glass is interested in outsider art is because I'm self-taught as a writer for the most part. I had a couple of teachers along the way, but for the most part, I've taught myself how to do this. And so sometimes I do what I do. And then after the fact, I figure out why I did it. So I didn't have any articulated reason for saying, okay, no, in general, this has to be about Amber Joe, the boy, now man, that she went to the dance with, and Joe's wife, Meredith, 
who's fully aware of Joe's past, but has no idea that Amber Glass is back in town, much less sort of beginning a certain kind of social media stalking. And what I figured out is that this is a novel about what goes on inside people's heads. It's about interiority. And it's why the three characters are are not particularly likable. And I knew that always. I knew that they would not always be likable and that a reader's allegiance would be constantly shifting. Like at one point you'll be like, okay, that's, that's the one I'm rooting for of the three. And then you'll find out something at the end of that chapter and be like, well, no, now they suck. So where do my, <laughs> where does my support go now? And um, yeah, so that, I mean, I, I've sort of strayed away from your original question, but yeah, that was very much inspired by something that happened to me. I would say like all of those chapters have some kind of real life germ to them. The one about the limo driver, I actually interviewed a guy who drove kids to proms in the 1990s. He was incredibly helpful. The story about um, the theme of the dance and the song where a character, I mean, a guy from the football team, I believe drinks the goldfish that's supposed to be a party favor. That actually happened to a friend of mine. She saw that at her prom. So all of those stories, the, the prom is, it's one of those weird things in the U.S. where people tell you you have to go because if you don't go, you'll spend the rest of your life wishing that you had gone. But if you do go, you find out it just matters not at all. It's, it's just the weirdest built up thing I went, I went with a friend because I didn't have a boyfriend. I went with a guy, but it wasn't like any big romance. And I'm glad I did because I don't have to ever think, gee, if I'd gone to my prom, would my life be so much better? But I went to my prom and it made not a difference in my life. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
you're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Laura Lippman, and we're talking about her latest novel, Prom Mom. And Laura, at the end of the first half there, you sort of hinted where the direction the book is going to take. The start of the novel where Amber is at the prom and it ends with her unconscious with a dead baby being found, but we don't actually know what's happened. However, she is obviously blamed for it and convicted and spends some time in a a young offender centre. So the majority of the book, apart from in flashback, is set in a sort of present day. And so tell us who the adult Amber is that we meet. She's still a little bit odd. There's still something about her. I mean, she's more polished. She sort of found the persona that she wants to present in adulthood. But, you know, she's just she can't help not being a little bit odd given the things that she's experienced. And she comes back to Baltimore to settle her stepfather's estate, surprised and pleased that he's actually left it all to her, her mother being dead. And she even stops to think that her mother would be so mad to find out that her husband had left this money to her daughter. And she's been living in New Orleans. She's built a life there. She's, you know, she's not particularly well off, but she's making ends meet, working part-time in a gallery, working in one of you know, the better restaurants. She loves it. She's very happy there. She feels that she's been able to put her past behind her. And yet when she is back in the neighborhood where she grew up, she finds that she just can't leave. She wants to come back and she wants to open her own gallery. She's very smart as a businesswoman. She actually knows what she's doing and she will have the good fortune to open a gallery at a time when people actually are looking for a lot of art and looking for things to hang on their walls. And, you know, one of the first things she does when she's made this decision that she's not going to leave is open up her phone and Google the name of the boy who took her to prom. Well, there's something about the, um, she's she's a, a gallery owner and she sells particularly outsider, or as she calls it, visionary art. And particularly, I wanted to talk about the real life market in art that's made by people that are incarcerated. Well, it's definitely a thing. And it's interesting to me. I mean, what's most interesting to me, if you do a lot of research, is some really beautiful art was produced in these prison art programs, which to the best I can tell, they're not really around anymore. They were the product of a much more generous and gentler era that felt like just because people were in prison didn't mean they should lead lives of complete deprivation, that art therapy could be part of rehabilitation. So there's there's a lot of really beautiful, striking art. It's hard to find. Um, there have been small shows, but the as those programs kind of disappear, at this point, the market for prison art tends to be centered on the fame quotient of the artist. So John Wayne Gacy, who was a serial killer in Chicago in the 70s, uh, his art, I think it is probably is pretty dear. I know that the director, John Waters, who lives in Baltimore part of the time, has a piece by John Wayne Gacy. There is a woman in Arizona, Jody Arias, whose case fascinated a lot of people in the US. I was not one of them. And there are these little drawings that she does that I I just think are like uninteresting. And I don't personally, as I'm, and I'm someone who actually collects visionary art and I've now become a docent at the American Visionary Art Museum here in Baltimore. So this is something I I'm really immersed in. And I don't 
I don't get that. To me, the whole point of art is, do you vibe to it? Do you look at something and does it instantly bring you joy? That's the kind of art you want to bring into your home. In my opinion, the idea that you would buy something because a famous criminal created it, just it does not compute for me. And I don't think it computes for Amber. And the book, (laughs) I took an interesting approach, which is that the artists that are um, name checked in the book are all real artists in the visionary art movement in the United States. But the works I described, I made up. Again, I'm not sure why I did that. Um, I think part of me felt like just as I couldn't have used an image without seeking copyright permission, that maybe even describing a piece of art was somehow um, unfair to the artist. But if I made up the art, I wasn't stealing their work. But, you know, visionary art is, you know, basically the art of the self-trained. And it's really evolved a lot over the years. And, you know, I've got to stop myself because I will just go on and now talk about visionary art for 45 minutes. Becoming a docent at this museum has been one of the greatest things I've ever done. Last Friday, in the middle of my book tour, I signed up to do some tours. And last Friday, I led some young people who came from quite disadvantaged circumstances through the museum. Most of them had never been in a museum before. And I got to the end of the tour and I turned to them and I said, well, I'm going to walk you over to your workshop now and you're going to be making some of your own art, but do you have any questions for me? And this 13-year-old boy looked at me and said, yes, can I work here when I'm 14? And it was just like one of the greatest things that's happened to me all year. I'm still just, still just kind of giddy over it. One more thing, and then I'm going to get you to read a bit. The pandemic, this novel was obviously written during the pandemic. But it is also a pandemic novel. And I've read over the past year or so, I've started to read, like, you know, obviously, as you can imagine, quite a few pandemic novels, but they tended to be ones that were, you know, a sort of middle class person in London, literary fiction that features the pandemic. And I think this is the first one I've read that's like a sort of tightly plotted thriller that uses the pandemic as part of its plot. Um, So I wanted to talk about that, about incorporating, I guess, both writing this while the pandemic was on, but also incorporating that tightly into the plot of the novel. Someone else on my tour made this observation to me, which was that the pandemic in crime fiction can function as kind of a metaphorical locked room, which I thought was a good observation. I mean, what I felt, I felt helpless. I felt like I must set this during the times that we're living in. Although on the early end, and I did find the pandemic to have such discrete, specific chapters that by the time I'm really getting underway in this book in the spring of 2021, we're in post-vaccine, we were in a different era in the US. And so I felt like I was writing almost weirdly historical fiction, and I felt it should be the backdrop and just, I wanted to show kind of the quotidian life of people in my town during the pandemic. But I also felt that the pandemic made certain things in the lives of Amber, Joe, and Meredith more possible. I think it made it more possible for for Amber and Joe to, to reignite their relationship. And I think it also makes some of the, the darker decisions that these characters make. I think within that time frame, 
it makes sense because there was a sense for me in the U.S. that we had kind of lost our moral compass, starting at the top with government and government having a political and sort of a humanitarian response to the pandemic. It seemed so cynical and so indifferent to actual human life. And then as we kind of went down the ladder toward the individual level, people became super judgmental on both sides. You know, whether there were people who believed in very strict pandemic protocols or people who believed that it was all a hoax, both sides were quite unkind to each other. People became people became really mean. And I feel like we're still living with that. I think the meanness is still there. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that I I was very much pro-mask and, you know, I have a sister in a nursing home and my mother's 92. So the way I lived my life affected other people who were medically quite frail and vulnerable. But sometimes I think, I don't know, was there something about walking around with a mask on that made us act like robbers. I don't know. It was, I, it was just such a weird time. And I couldn't imagine not writing about it. I just had to do it once and only once, I hope. I don't ever, I hope I never have another pandemic to write about, but who knows. To finish it off then, can I get you to read us a bit? This is a scene from early in the book when a character is getting ready to have the monthly book club at her house. Meredith surveyed the dining room table. Platters of cheese and meats, homemade pimento cheese, her mother's recipe. Crudités, fruit. Inevitably, there would be women on keto or Whole30, but they could eat the vegetables and the meats, maybe the hummus. She was unclear in all the rules of the various diets. Meredith had never dieted in her life. Oh, she watched what she ate and exercised rigorously, but she'd been spared the body obsession that plagued almost every other woman she knew perhaps because her body had failed her so fundamentally when she was young. A near-fatal illness at age 11 has a way of changing one's perspective. She refused to theme her refreshments to the book, a practice she found frivolous, and in the case of tonight's book, beloved, potentially offensive. Meredith had resisted book clubs for a long time, and she had joined this one only because she had been assured by her best friend, Wendy, of its seriousness. Discussions were substantive, and no one ever failed to do the reading. Wendy Asher was a sweetheart, but if she thought these halting discussions that boiled down to a thumbs up, thumbs down, were substantive, well, in the parlance of Meredith's hometown, bless her heart, there were always at least two members who tried to fake their way through it, relying on Wikipedia or film versions, while others seemed intent on talking about anything except the book. The one promise that the club had kept was selecting books that had won major awards. The choice of Beloved had been prompted by Toni Morrison's death at summer's end. The selection had been Meredith, but she did not have high hopes for an elevated conversation. Why do you continue to go, Joe had asked once, if you dislike it so much? Meredith wished she knew. She had been like this all of her life, dutiful to a fault, kind, prone to caring for others, but seldom without the inner caustic voice salting her compassion. Only Joe was spared her harsh judgments, which was how she had known Joe was the only one for her, her actual soulmate. So I've been talking to Laura Lippman. We've been talking about her latest novel, Prom Mom, which is out now in the UK from Faber. Laura, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, thanks. It was really fun catching up with you. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. <laughs>